it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you all here on board Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, those three hours, a lot packed in. If you can listen live as we air, we appreciate that. We encourage that. If you can't, we have a podcast. It is free of charge. It is on demand. It is every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. If you don't know me, I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. And over there on the TV side, I will be on special report this evening with Brett Baer and the panel in the 6 p.m. hour. That's the schedule at least. That's on Fox News Channel, so hopefully I'll get a chance to see you all there. Let's tell you about the radio show today here on the program. Later this hour, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas from one of the border districts, he will be here talking about this escalating feud, this war of words between the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and the mayor of New York City, Mayor Adams. Because it really feels like Adams is out of his depth and is kind of flailing a little bit. He picked the fight. Abbott wasn't even sending migrants to New York. He was sending them to D.C., and then Eric Adams was insisting that New York was sort of part of this, And so Abbott said, all right, good idea. We'll send some migrants your way. And things have descended from there. I think that Abbott is winning this thing in a rout back and forth. And Eric Adams is not helping himself or his city or his party or the country. We'll see if Congressman Gonzalez agrees. We'll play you some of that audio. In fact, the mayor of New York City is now threatening to go down and campaign against Abbott in Texas. And I cannot imagine that the Abbott campaign would want anything more than the mayor of New York City coming down to have a fight over illegal immigration in the pro-illegal immigration side of things in the state of Texas. Like, bring it on. So Congressman Gonzalez with his take coming up later this hour. Shannon Bream will be here in the next hour. We will check in with her about the whole Mar-a-Lago raid, the drama surrounding that, some of the legal questions about that. We will pick Shannon's brain. I have a few things to say about that probably this hour as well. And in our last hour, Jessica Tarloff, our friend from the other side of the ideological spectrum, we will have her here on a variety of topics. Uh, I'd imagine that we might have some agreements, but probably some disagreements as well on this Trump FBI raid situation and this whole news story. We'll see. We'll talk to Jessica Tarloff about that in our third and final hour today. As we get going, though, the lead story is the economy. The lead story is inflation. And we have new numbers out today on inflation, and it is just breathtaking and galling the way that the Biden administration and some of their just shameless water carriers in the press, how they are reporting today's developments that are not good. Inflation remains extremely bad. Real wages are down significantly. 
but they are spinning and lying and gaslighting in a way that is, I keep coming back to this word because it applies, insulting. They insist on one issue after another to insult our collective intelligence. And we're getting that in spades here today. So here's the number, headline from foxbusiness.com. Inflation climbed 8.5% in July as prices cool but remain near record highs. The torrid pace of inflation slowed in July for the first time in months, but prices remained near the highest level in 40 years. The Labor Department said Wednesday that the Consumer Price Index, a broad measure of the price of everyday goods, including gasoline, groceries, and rent, rose 8.5% in July from a year ago, below the 9.1% year-over-year surge recorded in June. Prices were unchanged in the one-month period from June. So they get into some of the more specific data, so-called core prices, so core inflation, which strip out more volatile measurements of food and energy, climbed 5.9% from the previous year which was better than the 6.1% increase forecast, but still matching the reading from July. So this was basically flat core inflation, a slight decrease in the rate of inflation compared to June in July, but still roughly around four-decade highs. Inflation has not been reversed. We do not have deflation. Prices are not coming down. Prices are still increasing. Inflation is still way up. It's just not up quite as much as it was last month. But still going up. And they are, like, taking a victory lap over this. I mean, it is astounding to watch. I understand that it's politics and it's a political season. There's an election coming up. But it is extraordinary. With the American people hurting as badly as they are, and prices still massively elevated. Like some of the worst prices we've seen, certainly in my entire lifetime, and they are like, wow, look at what we are achieving. You're welcome, America. And they're putting this ridiculous spin on it. Again, it's insulting. Now, a lot of the bulk in the slowing, I saw CNN had a headline or a Chiron saying that inflation took a breather. In July. No. Inflation is still rampant and raging. There was no breather. It's just not quite as bad in the rate of inflation increase as it was last month. But the the elevation is still there. It's undiminished. It's still up. Up, up, up. Way up. But a lot of that improvement that they're pointing to was because gas prices came down and... Airfare came down in commercial airfare, which is related, by the way, that's a fuel thing. Now, the reason that gas prices have come down a little bit, I saw my local gas station had about $4 a gallon, which is an improvement, but still bruising. That's come down largely, experts and analysts say, because of a decrease in demand, which is usually not a great sign for the economy, where fewer people are consuming. Gas, it's just so expensive, so demand has come down, so prices have come down a bit as well. If you look at just that data point, it's, again, potentially worrying for the economy. It's also just sort of curious that 
Joe Biden, the president, in his little press avail today when he went out to crow about everything, that he didn't take the opportunity to give a big shout out to old Vlad. Right, because weren't we told for many months in a row that this was Putin's price hike, a president has no control over this stuff, it's all beyond his control, and it's Vladimir Putin's fault, and it's the greedy oil companies, their fault. They were just price gouging to make their profits and pad their pockets and give a bunch of money back to their shareholders or whatever. That was the story. And also greedy gasoline store owners, right? Mom and pop gasoline stores, right? Those are also the greedy culprits in all of this. That was the talking point from this White House and from the Democratic Party and from certain quarters of the ultra-hacktastic media. Putin and corporate greed. And now on that area, prices have come down because of the demand issue that I mentioned. And strangely, we're just not getting big hosannas for Vladimir Putin. Because if it was Putin's price hike, you would think it would be Putin's price cut. He must have done it. Because Biden said they, they had no control. The president couldn't do anything. And I also would imagine that Biden should be, like, sending bouquets of flowers and showering praise upon oil executives and people who own gas stations, right? Because their greed is magically and suddenly diminished. And they're taking credit for it at the White House. Did he say any of those things? Obviously not. Obviously not. The excuses just change and evolve rapidly as necessary. And they just hope that you don't remember any of the things that they were telling you very earnestly, extremely recently. So, yeah, all that hogwash we were shoveling into your face for weeks, never mind all that. Congratulations to us. Congratulations to me. Inflation has taken a breather. And then it really got brazen earlier today with Biden just straight up misstating the facts. You could call this lying. Cut 25. Listen. Before I begin today, I want to say a word about the news that came out today relative to the economy. Actually, I just want to say a number. Zero. Today, we received news that our economy had zero percent inflation in the month of July. Zero percent. Here's what that means. While the price of some things go up, went up last month, the price of other things went down by the same amount. The result, zero inflation last month. But people are still hurting. But zero inflation last month. Zero percent inflation in July is what the president said. The actual number is eight point five percent year over year that's the real number 8.5 it's not zero prices are still way up to say that it was flat which i kind of what he's getting at here they're just trying to make it sound a lot better than it is to say that it's basically flat month to month is not really an achievement because we are still in a a period of extreme pain on this front 8.5% inflation remains at one of the highest levels it's been in decades. It is right near a 40-year high. So to say that we have zero inflation or 0% inflation is really, really dishonest. Heather Long at the Washington Post says that inflation, like the rate of inflation, the going up of prices, dropped to 8.5% in July, down from 9.1% in June, Big declines in gas prices, almost 8% in July, and airfares related, 
similar number in July, helped a lot. But, she says, grocery prices, rent, and electricity continue to rise. So what you're paying to cool your home, what you're paying for your apartment in rent, what you're paying to put food on the table, that was all up again in July. Up, up, and up. Down was gas prices because of the dynamic that I mentioned. And by the way, some of the experts are saying gas prices will probably get volatile and expensive again this fall. So those things might get reversed. The positive or encouraging trends on fuel and gas prices, those could get reversed in, let's say, October. That's one month that I've heard as sort of circled as where this thing might start going in the wrong direction again, at which point I would imagine we'll start hearing about Vladimir Putin again and corporate greed and all of that. The talking points will be back. But core inflation is flat, effectively flat, and you have significant increases in prices for Americans when it comes to groceries, rent, electricity, and a whole bunch of other areas as well. And it's just, again, like the chutzpah that it takes for this crew to say that we have zero inflation, 0% inflation in July when the number is 8.5, and try to say, well, if you're comparing this to this and these things, it is just a slap in the face. It is a slap in your face. It's a slap in the face of every American who has been feeling this pain and getting crushed under these harmful policies for a year and a half. From the people, and they want you to trust them. These are the people who told you that inflation would be transitory a year plus ago. And no one was worried about inflation. No, it's going to be temporary. Don't worry about these people over here. And then here we are, countless months later. That's how it feels, at least. Well over a year, and it has just been horrendous. Right? So it's transitory till it's not. A recession isn't a recession. 8.5% inflation is 0% inflation. Ron Klain, the chief of staff of the White House, went on to Twitter. And by the way, the White House, they are like leaning into the 0% inflation talking point. That is their official talking point. It's amazing. But Ron Klain, chief of staff, he says, jobs up, inflation down. Wages up, gas prices down. The thing is with wages, they are not up. Real wages, this is a quote from... The actual inflation report from the government, quote, real hourly earnings decreased 3% from July 2021 to July 2022. So while wages are nominally up, inflation is up a lot worse. And so the buying power, the purchasing power of the wages, net-net is down 3%. Wages, real wages are down. And the chief of staff of the White House is saying that they're up. It's just like opposite day. If they weren't so arrogant and shameless and insulting, they could say some progress is being made in some areas, and we hope that continues. It's still bad. People are still hurting. Biden did say that. But there are at least a few glimmers of hope here, and we'll be watching those trajectories very closely. Of course, they've just spent hundreds of billions of new dollars, calling that inflation reduction, which it's not, as even Bernie Sanders will admit. And they're going to raise taxes. That's what they're also actively doing. 
but they could like level with us and tell us the truth about what's happening in a way where they can put like a little spin on it, but just the intense gaslighting is too much. Zero percent inflation in July when the real number is 8.5%, and food prices, by the way, went up again. They're the worst that they've been since 1979, six years before I even arrived on this planet. It's, it takes some real cojones to attempt this stuff, and some of the media are out there just you know trying to help them. The campaign season is underway. The election is soon, and so they are just going to pull out all the stops that they possibly can. The media very much have their blue jerseys on. It's crunch time. And those of us who know the truth and can feel it, that's the other thing. You don't have to like follow the statistics. You can understand what you're paying for stuff. We just have to keep our eye on the ball and not let them get away with it. We will certainly not let them get away with it here on The Guy Benson Show. Running late, I got to run. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I mentioned in the last segment that food costs have hit the highest inflation level since 1979, since the Carter era. Uh, that's a Freudian slip there. The Carter era, you call it an error as well, 1979 on food. How's this for a stat? The RNC policy research team demonstrating, illustrating, and they put out each month since Joe Biden and the Democrats passed the nearly $2 trillion so-called stimulus bill, the, uh, the rescue plan. Here's how the rescue's gone since those trillions went out the door. Every single month, Real wages have fallen every month since then. From April of 2021, looking at this year in March, real wages were down 2.6%, down 2.5% in April, 2.9% in May, down 3.4% in June, and now down 3% in July. And the White House Chief of Staff says, oh, wages are up. Biden's trying to pretend like this is some big improvement. 0% inflation. David Burge on Twitter says, this is the illustration when you lost your last game 91 to nothing and then bounced back to lose your next game 85 to nothing. Like, look at this improvement. Like, we won by six points. That's the spin they're trying to pull on you. It's not going to work. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Our website podcast is free every day. And there is no love right now between two major political figures in the country, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, a Democrat, and the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, a Republican. The issue at stake is the border crisis, 
and these migrants who continue flooding across the southern border at a record clip and the fact that the state of Texas is busing just a small fraction of those migrants to Washington, D.C., and now New York. And the mayor of D.C. kind of flipped out about it. They couldn't handle it. A few thousand they couldn't handle. Like less than one day's worth that arrived at the southern border over the span of weeks showing up in D.C. was just unbearable. A humanitarian crisis. They needed the National Guard, said Muriel Bowser. And then New York getting in on the action. Eric Adams really like leaning into this fight. I just don't think it's going very well for him. And with us now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican from Texas. His district is along the southern border. It's the 23rd Congressional District in Texas. And, Congressman, it's always good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Guy. I appreciate it. I just want to play you some of this sound. We've, we've referenced it a few times on the show this week. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, they've had a couple, just a, a, like two or three busloads of illegal migrants coming up from Texas, dropping off in the city of New York which is a sanctuary city, by the way, as is Washington, D.C. They say they're very proud of that, their sanctuary status for illegal immigrants. And your governor and the governor over in Arizona, Ducey, they're like, look, the administration won't do anything. They won't enforce the law. You've got this lawlessness being cheered on by Democrats across the country. Let's send some of these people directly to their front door. And those people, despite, you know, uh, pounding their chest about their sanctuary city status, they don't like that very much. Eric Adams calling it horrific, not the crisis, not the administration's policies, but Greg Abbott and the busing idea. He's calling that horrific and unimaginable. Here he is in cut 13. Listen. I mean, it's unimaginable to come to a country, uh, your first visit here, someone is throwing you out, as the governor of Texas is doing, and then trying to navigate this complex country, the delivery of services, and we're doing a, a good job in doing that. All right, so it's unimaginable. Then he's saying that the burden should be on Texas. Just leave them in Texas. Texas should bear the entire burden of this. Don't send them to New York. You figure it out. Cut 17. The Texas governor invited us to the border uh, what the Texas governor should do is invite those who were trying to find housing in his state to give them housing instead of uh, sending them here. Oh, yeah, don't send them here. Texas should give them housing. <laughs> They've come to Texas, just stay down there. That's what Adams is saying. And now there's this new wrinkle. He's now, quote, deeply contemplating this threat in cut 15. I am deeply contemplating taking a busload of New Yorkers uh, to go to Texas and do some good old-fashioned door knocking uh, because we, we have to, for the good of America, we have to get him out of office. So for the good of America, Greg Abbott needs to lose in Texas, and Mayor Eric Adams of New York City wants to go down to Texas and fight the governor on this front, on the border crisis, where he is casting... Abbott as the bad guy. Congressman, what do you make of all of this? You know, this is where it's it's absolutely comical, uh, but this is where the left has taken their politics. You know, uh, uh, if if we if it was the other way around and let's say there was an influx of Canadians and they were sending Canadians here to Texas, we would be up in arms. We go, wait, what's going on here? Why, why, Why is this happening? And the, the part that, that the mayor, the mayor of New York City forgot, the, the, the major part that he left out is these are illegal aliens, folks yep. that entered the country illegally. You know, I, I would say Texas and, and, and many of us 
uh, me included, is a very compassionate. We want those that want to come and live and live the American dream and do it through the front door. But the front door doesn't exist because the Biden administration has shut the front door and they've created this chaotic environment. They're just getting a taste of it. You know, I've got small little towns that people's lives are turned upside down. And, and Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter. Everyone, to me in my district, is saying, hey, Tony, find a way to solve this a- any way you can. We can't wait until the next election. We need help today. Yeah, it's just so amazing how these people posture and preen as these deeply compassionate folks. And we're a sanctuary city, and we're not yeah. like those horrible, benighted people down in Texas. Let's go try to beat Greg Abbott because he's really the villain in all of this. And then just a drop in the bucket gets of this of this crisis of this problem gets dropped mm-hmm. on their city and they absolutely freak out this was yeah. a stunt by abbott i called it a stunt from day one it's just a very effective stunt it is proving the point and i know that the abbott sure. people are very eager for mayor adams to come down to texas to campaign for better or work they're yeah. like please please do come <laughs> in fact so here's the governor earlier today he Chatted with Harris Faulkner, our colleague here at Fox News, on the Faulkner Focus. This is a couple hours ago from Fox News Channel. Cut 26. Listen. You know, I kind of feel like Clint Eastwood. Go ahead, Mayor. Make my day. Uh, (laughs) There could hardly be anything better uh, to aid my campaign against Beto O'Rourke than to have Beto O'Rourke have his campaign aided by a bunch of New Yorkers that will not be viewed very positively in the state of Texas. And what exactly would they go door knocking to say to Texans? You guys should be housing all the illegal immigrants here. We support the border crisis. We just don't want them up in New York. So know your place and stay out of the Northeast. That's kind of the message. Right. Yeah, no, they are. They're so out of touch. And, you know, I want to say, hey, welcome to the Biden border crisis party. You know, we've been expecting you. This is how the party goes. It starts off terrible. It gets worse, and just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. So I wouldn't stay too long. And, and, and here's the, the, the other part of it. If, if these New Yorkers come down to Texas, they may not want to leave. I mean, there's a reason why people are coming to Texas <laughs> in droves. It's, uh, it's a little hot right now, but, uh, but it's, it's free country. You know, it's, it's a way you can raise your family, and, uh, you know, you can, you can start a business without being crushed by some of these taxes. I go back to it, though. Look. The city of New York City should be worried about New York City. How about the people that are that are dying in their streets and on their subways? They want to distract, like everything else. They want to distract. You know, I just got back from Central America. I was in the jungles of Central America last week. I spent six days in uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, meeting with uh, President of Guatemala, foreign foreign uh, minister of of, uh, of some of the other countries. And this is what shocked me, guy is I specifically asked the president of Guatemala, hey, what would it take in order to, for you to take more of these repatriation flights? These are people that do not qualify for asylum. You send them back to their country of origin. What would it take for you to take more of those flights? His answer was one simple thing, Tony. I just need the president of the United States to call me. He won't even call me. He won't even – no one's been to that area in, in years. I mean, uh, Harris went down there one time. Uh, you know, she, it, it's kind of been a show. All they have to do, all the president has to do is pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, let's end this today. And, and this goes away. The White House is also condemning what the state of Texas is doing, what the state of Arizona is doing with the buses being sent to the northeast. 
doesn't make any sense. It's incoherent because the administration has been flying and busing illegal immigrants to mm-hmm. the destinations of their choice for months. Like yeah. that's their policy. You guys go, you come in, you get processed. We'll bring you wherever you want to go, and then hopefully show up for a court date way down the line. And a lot of them don't, of course. So they've been doing that. And just a, a couple weeks ago, at this point, Corinne Jean Pierre at the White House, the president's spokeswoman, she mm-hmm. was asked, "Well, what's the difference between Texas doing this?" And, you know, and Arizona doing this versus what the administration policy is. Here's how she tried to spin it. Not very successfully. This is cut. I want to get this right. This is cut 19. What's the difference between Texas busing migrants to D.C. and the federal government flying migrants to, say, New York in the middle of the night and other cities? It's very different because we're not doing it as a as using migrants as a political pawn. Oh, well, it's very different because political pawn, Congressman. Does that satisfy you? It does not satisfy me. And, and look, there is some political theater in the buses getting sent to New York City and D.C. and, and who, who knows where else. Uh, I, I've been focused on, hey, how do we solve this, right? Instead of making this a political football where, you know, where, where the parties try to, you know, uh, capitalize on it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Texas 23, which I represent 42 percent of the border, our lives are turned upside down. So we don't care about the politics. We don't care about the, the optics in it. We want this to go sure. away. Instead of busing and flying people all over the country, how about you bus and fly people back to their country of origin that do not qualify? And in the same well, breath, how about, was, you, how about you open up work visas? Yeah, and I was going to say, I think that if he had the authority to do it, Governor Abbott would be more than happy to repatriate these people and send them back south of the border. He doesn't have that authority. He only has so many tools available to him. And the reason that he's doing this, and it is political theater, but again, to make a point, and he's making it very well. Like, if you guys support these policies and you want to pretend like this is a big crisis that's, you know, Mm -hmm. a figment of our imagination, out of sight, out of mind, keep it down there in Texas, your problem – he needs to make it partially their problem, and he's doing that, and yeah. I think he's, he's making the point rather well. I do want to focus on something that you just said, though, Congressman, and this is sort of the, mm-hmm. the last subject here on the immigration front. You said that you want solutions that will help fix the problem. It seems as though the administration is going in exactly, precisely the opposite direction with some of their policies these days. Beyond what they've already done, there are some new changes. They have formally and officially Mm -hmm. shut down Remain in Mexico, which was a Mm -hmm. successful Trump-era policy. They have now shut it down. That was a good, effective policy that is gone. And I also saw you tweeting just the other day, I think it was earlier this week, that the Mm -hmm. Title 42 removals have – come down to a tiny trickle, and they're basically de facto canceling that policy as well. You put those two together, and Mm -hmm. the problem gets even worse, right? That's 100% right, and it's no longer dangerous. It's deadly. We've seen people die. uh, Americans die. We've seen uh, National Guardsmen die. We've seen you know these folks that are coming over illegally die, and this administration just doubles down. On, on their approach to it, and they're unraveling it. They're very much unraveling it. Like, like I said, I sat down with the president of Guatemala. It's the third time in the last seven months that I've, I've communicated with him. You know, we had dinner in D.C. a couple times, and this time in Guatemala. And he's going, jumping up and down, going, Tony, I want to help you solve this because, you know, I've got my own issues here. 
uh, on the border that we want to solve too. You know, this goes away if, if you're if the president just picks up the phone. But but if they don't, if they continue down this path of unraveling everything that Trump did because of their 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 Trump madness that they have, they're, they're not only going to you know cause damage, but they got to be held responsible for this. There has to be. This is their doing. You know, uh, they're doing absolutely nothing but harm. Like I said, just when you think it can't get any worse, they go out and make it worse. Yep, and they're empowering and enriching the cartels. There's a public safety element to this. There's a public health element to this with fentanyl. I mean, the, the list goes on. You know it better than anyone, Congressman. And it almost feels like the Biden administration is going out of its way to fail deliberately. They, they enjoy, they relish the border crisis because it – I don't know. They feel like maybe in the longer term this will be a political plus for them with their activists right now and future voters. I don't know. But it's absolutely disgraceful. And I think it is rich to hear the, you know, the squealing from some of these politicians who have not a peep to say about any of the real problems when a little tiny bit of the problem is visited upon them in their communities. Uh, I think, again, it's very revealing. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican, Texas 23, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, always appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. We will step aside and come right back. A report that would be absolutely stunning related to the Mar-a-Lago raid. We'll tell you about that right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We've got Shannon Bream coming up in the next hour to talk about some of this. But there's a new story from Newsweek which cites federal law enforcement sources, anonymous sources, dishing a little bit on this Mar-a-Lago raid. And there are a few things that caught my attention about this story. And let's just say I need a lot more confirmation before I believe some of this. But... If this story is accurate, I'm just blown away. This is what Newsweek is reporting, that this raid happened and that the FBI didn't think it would be perceived as political. And one of these sources at the DOJ says, what a spectacular backfire. The source says, I know there's much speculation out there that this is political persecution, but it is really the best and the worst of the bureaucracy in action. They wanted to punctuate the fact that this was a routine law enforcement action stripped of any political overtones, and yet they got exactly the opposite. I mean, what on earth did they think was going to happen? It is not routine as a law enforcement action to raid the house of a former president and a potential future presidential candidate. That is not routine. And If they actually thought this would be perceived as stripped of political overtones, are you kidding? Like, this is why I have trouble believing this. If this is right, there is a level of incompetence and stupidity among those making these decisions that I cannot comprehend. Now, what the story also says is, quote, senior government officials say the raid was scheduled with no political motive The FBI was solely intent on recovering highly classified documents that were illegally removed from the White House. Now, I'm sure there'll be a debate about, are these classified materials? If the president decides to declassify them and take them, there are still rules governing how to handle sensitive and classified material. That stuff should all matter. There are laws. 
Seems like the laws aren't always applied evenly. In fact, I see the FBI lawyer who actually got convicted for lying during the whole Russiagate thing. He is now back in good standing with the D.C. bar. So his life is perfectly fine. Someone who did you know, actual clear malfeasance. So I think that's like the, the standards here drive people crazy, and they make you at the very least scratch your head. But this, this detail in the Newsweek story would suggest that the raid is about presidential records and not something bigger. Andy McCarthy, Chris Christie on the show yesterday both thought there's no way it could just be about that. This has to be about something else. It has to be you know, a piece of a larger puzzle on something much more serious than a presidential records dispute. No way that the attorney general would sign off on this over something that's relatively small potatoes. Except here's another detail from the Newsweek story citing law enforcement sources supposedly familiar with all of this. They're saying that Attorney General Merrick Garland, quote, had no prior knowledge, end quote, of the raid. What? I mean, if if that is true, and I really struggle to believe that, that the Attorney General didn't know about this in advance, and this was just like, you know, the, the FBI, quote, misreading the impact, that's what the sources are saying for this Newswork, uh, Newsweek story, If that's true, it is utterly flabbergasting. It is flabbergasting if the Attorney General of the United States did not know about and sign off on something of this magnitude. This was just like the FBI saying, yeah, let's go go for it, and it won't be political, and it won't be perceived that way. It's totally fine. They just did it? If this stuff is true, it is a massive scandal, and heads should roll. But I want more confirmation. I'm dubious of a lot of this stuff. We'll have Shannon Bream here coming up to talk about all of it on The Guy Benson Show in our next hour. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for tuning in every single weekday. We like to remind you of that. We also like to remind you of our website, GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. Catch me on Special Report tonight with Brett Bayer and company. That's in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow up big today, 535 points, closing at 33,309. And with us now is Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox, also anchor of Fox News at night, every weeknight at midnight on FNC, host of the hit podcast, Live in the Bream, a best-selling author. Her most recent is The Women of the Bible Speak. And it is wonderful to chat with you as always, Shannon. Great to be with you, Guy. Busy week. Very busy week. We were just reading from this Newsweek story last hour. I don't know if you've seen it, but they are Mm -hmm. quoting law enforcement officials, law enforcement sources anonymously. They're saying the Attorney General Merrick Garland did not have prior knowledge of this raid. It was an FBI sort of joint. They did it. They thought it wouldn't be perceived as political. And it's backfired spectacularly. That's what these sources are saying. Uh, Meanwhile, our colleague Charlie Gasparino, 
tweeting this with a scoop, quote, Donald Trump and his legal team will likely seek a court order to force the FBI and Justice Department to turn over a physical copy of the search warrant, the affidavit, and a complete inventory of what was taken in the Mar-a-Lago raid. Story developing. Okay, that's a lot to chew on, Shannon. Let's just start with this. Uh, would it? Am I missing something? Would it be not shocking if the attorney general did not know about the raid of federal investigators at the home of, of a former president before it happened? It's not required by law, certainly. Um, you would think in this case, given the sensitivities of doing something that's never been done before and involving a former president, that he would know. I thought it was interesting. The language was sort of he didn't know the specific time and date of this raid and wasn't asked to approve it. So to me, that says he knew exactly what was going on. He could have known that they were getting an affidavit, that they had gone to a judge. I think that still leaves a lot of room, that he had the basic idea of where this was culminating to, but he may not have known Monday morning, 9 a.m., Mar-a-Lago, it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I just think we need a lot more information. Um, We're sort of flying blind here, and therefore there's just a wildfire of speculation, and it gets fed by little morsels, and you don't know what the provenance Mm -hmm. and how, how, you know, credible this stuff is. It's just, to me, to not have the attorney general intimately involved with this kind of decision, given what you just described, you know, the sensitivities, and, of course, the political considerations. Like, the idea, it's like, oh, the AG didn't know – He didn't have prior knowledge of the raid, and the FBI just thought this would look above board and apolitical. I I really can't quite bring myself to believe that people would be that stupid and that naive, especially after the last five, six years. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess maybe at some point we'll find out more. Then there's this issue of the the warrant itself, the affidavit behind the warrant. Um, Some people have asked why hasn't Trump released it. I've seen conflicting things that he's refusing to release it, that they don't have it. Then there's this Gasparino scoop that they're going to try to force DOJ and F- the FBI to hand this stuff over. What do we know about all of that? So a warrant they would leave on the scene. That absolutely would have to happen. And Christina Bob, who was one of the Trump attorneys on site at Mar-a-Lago, says they did give her a copy um, when they left. And so as they're carrying it out, generally they'd show it to you. You know, you got to make sure in this case – you know, this wouldn't be a problem. But say somebody shows up at your house and knocks on the door, I want to come in, I've got a warrant, you ask to see it. They could make a mistake on the address or the name or something else. So you have a right to look at it. But they're not going to let you hold on to it probably in many cases during the um, search. But Christina Bob, one of the attorneys, has said they gave her a copy. So they have that. Now, it's not going to have all the underlying goodies, the affidavits, and everything that it was based on. It will say, and she's talked in some detail about what was in the warrant, it will say what they're looking for the parameters of their search that they've been granted by the judge, what federal statutes or if it's a state, you know, crime, state statutes that the alleged potential crimes are connected to. So there's a lot of information in the warrant, but it misses all the good juicy stuff, all of the testimony and at sworn affidavit that would have had to be given to this magistrate in West Palm for him to actually sign off on it. So they want the rest of what came with it. And that will tell them a lot more information. The president's team could put the warrant out into uh, the public domain if they chose to. You know, as lawyers, maybe they have um, reasons that they think it's going to be sensitive and they don't want it out there. But they've got it in their hands, at least that basic warrant. And so I guess that raises the next question, which is if they feel like it could be exculpatory or that, you know, it points in a direction that this was massive overreach, why wouldn't they release it? And maybe they have their reasons. If they're Mm -hmm. asking – 
to see all the underlying information and they might sue to get that, you know, would they keep that to themselves or are they suing or pressuring for this to be put out publicly? Because I think part of the issue here is the black box effect where so many of us don't really know anything specific and we're just getting these little dribs and drabs as speculation and anger and, you know, theories just build all across the country, which doesn't really feel like a terribly healthy set of circumstances. Yeah, and as you noted, Guy, it's it's astounding to me that they would be naive enough to think that, oh, this will have no political appearance of any politics to it. I mean, have <laughs> they met on. President Trump? Because you know that he's going to put out a statement like the one he put out Monday, Mar-a-Lago's under siege, they're coming after me, this is what I told you, they're making the case for me. Um, they had to know that was going to happen. And, you know, from what we're told, listen, they tried to do it quietly, he wasn't there, they sent guys in plain clothes. You know, that whole thing. But it's it's still, you know, the FBI showing up to search a former president's private residence. So that's still going to be a big deal. But you have to think, I, I cannot believe a federal agency and these, um, you know, the leadership would be naive enough to think this isn't going to be potentially huge and potentially a backlash. So in my mind, I'm like, they have to have crossed every T, dotted every I, have everything absolutely rock solid, or they wouldn't have done this. So there might be a lot more that we don't know. We would all yeah, look those affidavits. Judicial yeah, Watch is suing for it. I think, think there's another newspaper that's suing. So we all want to see it. Yeah, I mean, and your, I think your analysis is right, which is you would think that there's no way it could have been X, Y, or Z. I just am not sure I'm confident of that. Certainly not yet. And we'll keep watching it closely. Shannon Bream, our guest on The Guy Betson Show. Thank you, Shannon. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for being here. So this is quite something. And I have been on the monkeypox bandwagon, talking about this story, beating the drum, drawing attention to it here for days. Because there is an extraordinary failure playing out before our eyes of this government and the Biden administration. And it's getting covered in the mainstream media from people who are focused on this individual issue, but it is not breaking through or getting amplified as the scandal that it absolutely is. And you can go back and listen to our show from last week, where I talked about this at length for almost an hour. We put part of that monologue on YouTube, and it's got more than 100,000 views. We walked you through some of the details. Basically, what's happening is, Monkeypox is proliferating and growing in the United States overwhelmingly among men and within that group overwhelmingly among gay and bisexual men or men who have sex with men. And it is being transmitted by and large sexually, not exclusively, but for the most part. So you have this small community that is disproportionately impacted by this disease, which seems, from what I've heard and read, very unpleasant. And the federal government does not have enough vaccine to get everyone protected that's in the high-risk group. And they're actually being very, I would say, misleading and incomplete in their explanations of who's really at risk. But the truth comes down when it comes to their vaccination criteria, which is explicit and very narrow. So I think there's a lot of contradiction there and very bad messaging for political correctness reasons. We've talked about all of that. We told you about how this vaccine shortage 
is occurring for a number of different reasons. Even though we, the taxpayers, collectively, gay, straight, whatever, we've all paid for billions of dollars worth of this vaccine in terms of its development and buying doses. Billions of dollars of our dollars have been spent on this. Great. We need it. What has the administration done? Because of bureaucratic red tape, they allowed about a million doses just to sit in Denmark because the FDA hadn't inspected the facility properly. And the EU said, we've inspected it, it's fine, we're giving this stuff to our citizens, and the Biden administration the FDA said, nope, the paperwork is wrong, so sorry, and it just sat there. You had more than 200,000 additional doses simply given away to other countries this spring. The brain trust at the Biden administration and the HHS department, they decided, it's fine, give it to Europe, 215,000 doses. That was another mistake. Then there was another huge batch, roughly a million doses, if I recall correctly, that were bought and paid for, for Americans, and HHS forgot to ask for it to be bottled so it could then be shipped and disseminated. And by the time they caught up with that and said, oops, we have to get this stuff bottled, a bunch of other entities and countries had gotten before us, in front of us, on the line, meaning that the backlog is going to take months to address. So that's where things stand. They're talking about a vaccine cliff, not nearly enough vaccine doses to go, even to the relatively small population at the highest risk. They have bungled this very badly. I will recall for all of us, back in late May, when this was starting to percolate, because remember, they're always caught off guard by everything, and then they're scrambling, whether whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's economic hardship, whether it's the baby formula shortage, just issue after issue. They're always scrambling. I've made this point. After assuring people that things are fine, and then it takes a while for the lie to be exposed, and then they start getting more heat, and then they start pointing to their efforts to correct their own problems as some sort of heroic thing that they're doing. That's the pattern. So back when they were in the reassurance mode, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, asserted May 23rd, this was in USA Today, that the United States has enough vaccines to deal with a monkeypox outbreak. Now, that has been disproven by events because they have been rationing this vaccine, of which we do not have nearly enough, for a number of reasons related to the bureaucracy and the failure of government. Now, here's a new story, because all of what I just told you has been reported by the New York Times and by the Washington Post and by the New York Post and a few other sources. This is the latest from the Washington Post. One of their reporters, Dan Diamond, writes, For weeks, U.S. officials said we had enough vaccines to ward off monkeypox. The new strategy unveiled today, listen to this, splitting doses into fifths is an admission that we didn't. So Biden was telling people, don't you worry, we got this. He's got his top man on the job, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra, who came into the position as the leader of the health department of the United States of America during a deadly pandemic that has killed at this point more than a million Americans. That guy took the job appointed by Biden and confirmed by Democrats with zero public health experience. None. He was a Democratic political hack and a lawyer. Famous for persecuting religious Christians, and social conservatives. That was his claim to fame, and Biden said let's make him health secretary in the middle of a pandemic for reasons that are directly tied, and they admit this. It's not like I'm inventing a conspiracy theory. They admit it. It was in all the reporting at the time. It was for diversity. 
His name was Becerra. He has brown skin. He's Latinx, to use their fake made-up term. They wanted more representation at the highest reaches of the administration to fulfill the equity promise that they had made. So they just shuttled a completely unqualified person into this crucial position, and we're getting the results that we're getting. Congratulations to the diversity obsessives. A lot of whom, by the way, are in the LGBT community. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for us, the community? So this is the latest example of the mess on our hands from the Washington Post. Biden administration officials announced Tuesday, yesterday, a new strategy to split monkeypox vaccine doses in hopes of vaccinating up to five times as many people against the virus. So they're taking the exact same quantity of vaccine where you get one shot and then about a month later you get a second shot. Though it's very much like COVID in that sense. One shot, wait four weeks, get a second one. They're now saying they are going to split up each of those two doses into five doses. And they're going to try to inject it into people slightly differently in a way that they think will not really diminish the efficacy, but they'll have a lot more shots to hand out. So they don't have the quantity that they need to do the proven laboratory correct protocol for efficacy. They are on the fly making a change and taking every one dose and making it five doses and telling us it won't have any impact on health or efficacy. And I was talking to a doctor earlier who is extremely skeptical of that, saying, where's the data for that? I guarantee you they don't have data. They're just doing it. This is born out of desperation based on their own failures. Later on in the Washington Post story, the author writes this, the change in injection method would maximize the immune reaction generated by the vaccine and allow U.S. officials to administer one-fifth of the original dose, stressing, these officials, stressing that the approach would not compromise safety or efficacy. But the change in vaccine dosing would be a large-scale, real-time experiment as officials race to stave off a monkeypox outbreak that has infected nearly 9,500 people in the United States. The announcement has drawn support as well as skepticism among public health experts eager to combat the virus, with some questioning its practicality and effectiveness. The administration has faced sustained criticism from patients, local public health officials, and some lawmakers for not ordering more doses of the vaccine. The change, meaning they're cutting the dose by 80%, (laughs) the change is not without risk. No kidding. People who receive the pared-down version of the vaccine, which is intended as a two-dose regimen, may end up needing additional shots if the new vaccine strategy leads to an insufficient level of protection against the virus. Local officials may also struggle to administer the new strategy, which could require additional training and supplies like new needles to safely deliver the shot. So it's a whole new process to inject people. And they're hoping it's going to work. They're telling us, don't worry, there's no change, even though we're cutting the dosage by 80%. And it's just a wide-scale experiment on millions of people. And they're just crossing their fingers and saying, it's going to be fine, even though a lot of experts are saying, we have no data to support that. And they're doing this because they don't have enough vaccine, because they've blown it. Partially because the guy running the health department of the Biden administration has absolutely no business being in that job, period. So enjoy the shot that you're going to get, guys. You can get a shot. So they'll be like, okay, the government didn't fail me. That shot will be four-fifths less of the dose to protect you than you were supposed to get. It's almost like vaccine inflation. (laughs) This is vaccine inflation. I'm sure they'll call this zero percent. 
because this is the spin today, apparently. Another admission of failure requiring them basically by necessity to run a giant experiment on people while gaslighting them that it's going to make no difference when they really don't know because they don't have data. Can you feel the success? Can you feel the progress, the competence of big government at work? Hey, but at least the cabinet, quote-unquote, looks like America. That's what really matters. You have a very diverse cabinet and a White House lit up like a rainbow during June. That will get you a lot of happy feels, but not a properly dosed monkeypox vaccine. Is that trade-off worth it? The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Back on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the week and the program. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast is always free. So last night, there were primaries around the country. And there was also a special election in Minnesota. This was for a congressional seat held by Republicans. And there was a vacancy because the sitting Republican congressman sadly passed away back in February. So this special election was scheduled. And this will be to fill the seat until January. So there'll be another election in this district, of course, in November. But still, people are paying attention because it's a head-to-head matchup of a Republican and a Democrat for a congressional seat in a battleground district. What happened last night in the first congressional district in Minnesota? Well, the Republicans won and held the seat. And there's something of a battle playing out among election watchers and political analysts. And this is a little bit in the weeds, but I wanted to highlight it here because I think it's important because you might get wind of it. I think that there are certain games being played right now in terms of enthusiasm, in terms of momentum, in terms of morale. The Democrats have this sense that they are now surging and the Republicans are falling. And I think that there are some people invested in that narrative and they want to keep sort of punching it up and inflating it. Which is not to say that there's nothing here for the Democrats to potentially be enthusiastic about, but I think if you look at this carefully, there's a lot less than meets the eye compared to what we're hearing from some people, including some very smart people. So this was a roughly four-point win for the Republican, Brad Finstad. He won by just over four percentage points, 51 and change to 47. And Dave Wasserman, who is a very smart guy, very sharp analyst, he's the one who I often follow on election nights, he's very good at figuring out When someone has won, he often calls races long before the networks, and he has a very, very, very good track record. He also is a lefty, so I think he has some blue-tinted glasses sometimes, including here. He's saying, wow, this is only a four-ish percentage point victory for the Republicans. Trump won this district by 10 points. So that's an underperformance by the Republicans, an overperformance by the Democrats. And he points to another special election back in June in Nebraska where there was a Trump plus 11 district that the Republicans held in a special by only six and a half points, an underperformance, a Democratic overperformance. And Democrats are really, I think, excited about these particular cherry-picked numbers. Now, they don't really want to talk about other examples of special elections that cut very much against this. For example, the Republicans picking up that border district down in Texas that had been held by Democrats forever. And Myra Flores won despite all the attacks against her. That was a sea change down there, a huge indicator 
But that one doesn't make it into the analysis of this Minnesota district, which they're talking about as a comparison to the Nebraska special election. Let's just not really mind the Texas border district. Now, is there a fair point here? Trump wins a place. Trump wins a district by 10 points back in 2020. The Republicans only win it by four last night when it's supposed to be this big wave year with all this Republican enthusiasm. Does that disprove the conventional wisdom? Just like in that Nebraska special back in late June, the Trump margin was cut in half. The Republicans still won, but not really in an impressive way based on that baseline. I think that's a fair question to ask. If you look at what happened in Minnesota last night, the Republican absolutely blew it out among rural communities, rural parts of the district. Just the margins were huge. Some of the biggest margins any Republican has gotten in rural areas in decades. Some areas more than a century in that district. However, in the more suburban and light urban areas of the district, they went heavily for the Democrat, Jeff Ettinger. And so what Democrats are saying is, look at this, in suburban areas, you might have more highly educated voters or what have you, and they might have been running away from the Democrats in the last year or two, but now, because of January 6th stuff and abortion and other reasons, they might be drifting back toward the Democrats, and that would really put a damper on a Republican wave in November if that were to happen. And if you look at the counties in this district last night, the Democrat won five of the top six most populous counties, highest population went to the Democrats, and then the Republican just cleaned up everywhere else by big margins. So if you look at just that data, you might think, okay, the Democrats are onto something here and the Republicans should be worried. Let me pause with the parenthetical. I'm not saying that the Republicans should or should not be worried. I think overall they still remain heavy favorites to win the House back. I will say that complacency would be the enemy of a red wave. If Republicans just sort of feel like it's going to happen automatically and they're going to have the enthusiasm advantage, all these independents are going to vote for them, the Democrats are demoralized, that might not be the case everywhere. It is still the case some places, but not everywhere. And I think Republicans should really be sprinting to the tape to try to maximize gains. In a current environment with a very unpopular president and the economy the way it is, Republicans should make big, big gains. They shouldn't have to wring their hands and sweat it out, especially in House races. Now, here's the much better news for Republicans in this district. If you go back and you look at this seat, Minnesota won. The Democrats held it from 2006 all the way to 2018. So this was a Democrat-held seat for about a dozen years until the 2018 cycle. Now, some of those were close races, but the Democrats held it. Then the Republicans won it in 2018 by a fraction of 1%. This is a battleground district. It was uber tight. I believe it was 50.1 to 49.7 was the outcome in 2018 with the Republican barely clawing through. Then in 2020, with Trump at the top of the ticket, Trump is more popular in this district. In some places, he's less popular. But in this area, he is more popular than the Republican Party is generally. So Trump won this district, Minnesota won, in 2020 by 10 points. But that same night, with Trump on the ballot, the incumbent Republican only won by three points, carrying less than 49% of the vote. There was a third party involved. 
last night with an open seat and a pretty strong Democratic nominee, the Republicans won by over 4%, a much bigger margin, a 10 times margin, 10x from 2018, and more than a point better than they did in 2020. When they had, you would think, given Trump's popularity there, some advantages built in. Republican turnout was not great last night. Democratic turnout was higher. I've seen people saying that's because generally a certain profile of voter is more honed in on special elections. And Republican-friendly turnout will probably be better in these types of districts in November. That stands to reason. I think that there is a lot of plausibility there. I wouldn't take it to the bank, but it makes sense at least to me. But even with some of these disadvantages, even with what happened last night, the Republican who won this race, Brad Finstad, won the highest percentage of the congressional vote in that district, dating all the way back to when this was a Democratic district. So if you use Trump's performance in the district as a baseline, it's an underperformance for the Republicans. If you use the congressional candidate on the Republican side, if that's the baseline, This is an overperformance by the Republicans and an underperformance by the Democrats. So I think that there's, you know, it's sort of pick your model here. There's a story to be told on both sides. I would note that even though in Minnesota, one, the turnout was weak for Republicans and better for Democrats, as I mentioned, there's reason to believe that that imbalance will improve in November, all else being equal. And then in other places... Republican turnout was extremely robust last night. So in Connecticut, for example, not exactly a red state, Republicans had an 8% increase in their share of the primary vote in terms of turnout. An 8% gain in their share of the primary vote in Connecticut compared to 2018, the last midterm election, which was a blue wave year. In Minnesota, overall, there was a 15% Republican overperformance in the primaries. And in Wisconsin, the gain was huge, more than 20% in Wisconsin. Where Democrats last night, they had primaries in Wisconsin, and about a little less than half a million Wisconsin Democrats voted. Republicans in Wisconsin that had a heated primary on the governor's side and more of a rubber stamp primary on the Senate side, almost 700,000 Republicans turned out in Wisconsin in that primary. So the gap was about 200,000 in Wisconsin in favor of the Republicans. That is a big reversal from 2018. So if you look overall at the national primary turnout aggregated this year, this cycle, overall turnout is up across the country compared to 2018. Democrats are down slightly compared to 2018. Republicans are up double digits, close to 20%. Back in 2018, the overall composition of the primary electorate, meaning people showing up, which party do they identify with, which party are they voting in, back in 2018, a big damn year, 53% at this stage of the cycle, 53% of the electorate was Democratic. It's currently 53% Republican. So that is a very significant swing. That would be a 12-point swing overall, which is pretty close to the swing that we saw in Virginia last year. And the swing that we saw in New Jersey last year. Do the Democrats have a few breadcrumbs here or there with some signs of hope? Yes, you can make that case. You can look at the generic ballot. They've made a comeback. They're now tied with the Republicans overall. 
in the average at Real Clear Politics. They had a big turnout in Kansas over abortion, where I think that they didn't frame the issue honestly, but I think the pro-life side also blew it in the way that they handled the whole issue. But that was a big monster turnout for the Dems in Kansas. So they can point to a few items, right? They can highlight a couple data points that tell a story for them on the Democratic side. I just think that there's very much still a very strong story for the GOP to tell. Oh, by the way, did you see that Ilhan Omar almost lost since we were talking about Minnesota? She barely squeaked through in her primary. She had a much more moderate, less anti-Semitic, which is a low bar, so someone who is pro-Israel, pro-law enforcement, and gave her a real scare. She only won by, what, two-ish points in that primary. But she won, so she'll be on the ballot. She'll remain in Congress. I do want to leave you with this one thought about the overall national environment, because I'm starting to see some bedwetting, you might call it, some hand-wringing from people saying, oh, gosh, the Senate is looking worse and worse for the Republicans. I'd say let's check back in about a month, month and a half, to see if I still feel the same way. I'm more nervous about the Senate. But on the House side, it's like, oh, gosh, you know, the Democrats might have a real chance of limiting the damage or even keeping the House. I would just say this. There's a new Politico poll in Morning Consult out today. Joe Biden is 20 points underwater on approval. 39% approved, 59% disapproved. Among independents, it's 32% approved, 64% disapproved. Two-thirds of independents in this country disapprove of Joe Biden's job performance. Republicans have a seven-point lead on strong enthusiasm in this poll. But overall, the generic ballot in this survey is tied, which is what we're seeing in the national average. 44-43, it's just a tie. Statistically, one point is meaningless. So that's you know relatively good news where Democrats are roughly tied in this poll while Biden is 20 points underwater. I'd say the concerning element for the Democrats in this exact same survey is 13% of people say, of these voters, say that they are undecided. And this is registered voters, not likely voters. I think a likely voter screen benefits the Republicans this year. But in this poll, 13% say they are undecided which side they are leaning towards voting for in November. Of that 13%, it is roughly a two-to-one margin of people with an unfavorable view of the president versus favorable. So there is a very significant imbalance of the undecideds cutting against Joe Biden and his job performance, which is why I think if you look through recent history, the late deciders often break against the party in power, especially when it's led by an unpopular person, and especially when the sourness of the electorate is this pronounced. I think we are still likely to see a significant effect like that in November. So all of which is to say some of the people starting to trying to dampen morale for Republicans and boost morale for Democrats and telling them a story, they're doing that for whatever reasons they're doing it, their own analysis. Maybe they've got some you know partisan agenda there. I think it's overhyped. But I also think that Republicans and conservatives and right-leaning independents and people who are sick of what's happening in this country with Biden and Democratic control and they want some checks and balances, they need to seriously show up in November. Turnout, turnout, turnout. The change can only happen if you make it happen. And it's essential. Well, break, we'll come back. Another piece of White House spin that I want you to hear will address it next on The Guy Benson Show. 
Fresh conservative talk. Kai Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've been talking about the Democrats and their doubling of the IRS. That's their proposal. That has passed the Senate, expected to pass the House, and be signed into law as part of this big package. They're calling inflation reduction, which basically everyone's admitting isn't reduction of inflation at all. Even Bernie Sanders making that point. But it does call for hundreds of billions of dollars in new revenue that the bill says will be collected by a hugely beefed-up, steroid-riddled IRS, doubling in size. 87,000 new agents and auditors hired, $80 billion injected, even though the former director of the IRS, commissioner of the IRS, who loves the IRS and wanted them to get a lot more money, he said that is more than three times the amount that they need. But Democrats are just shoveling money at them to go out there and audit a bunch of people to bring in more revenue for the government to then pay for this stuff that they're spending. And we've been making the case that obviously this is going to hit people making less than $400,000 a year in violation of President Biden's promise. In fact, if you look at the IRS and their behavior over time, a large majority of their audits hammer people making well less than that amount of money. Working class and middle class people are going to be affected, and we've gotten that from nonpartisan experts. But the Democrats say, nope, that's not true. That's not our intent. It's not going to happen. The IRS says, no, 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 don't worry. We're not going to do that. That's not our intent. It's not going to happen. And here's the White House under questioning from Peter Ducey, Corinne Jean-Pierre repeating the talking point. Cut 22. This is focus on those who are, uh, uh, you know, corporate wealthy tax cheats that Republicans, congressional Republicans, wanted to uh, defend. That's who they wanted to defend. They wanted to defend those corporate uh, tax cheats. This is not about. This is not about that. This is not about folks who make less than four hundred thousand dollars. So no new audits on anybody making under four hundred thousand dollars a year. Very clear. No. A very clear no, she says, and that just isn't true. That will be proven untrue, I think, in very short order. It has no teeth. It is going to fall apart, and the Democrats' own votes betray that. And here's the White House again just saying, oh, just trust us. Trust us. Inflation is zero, even if it's 8.5%. A multi-trillion dollar spending bill costs zero. Remember that one? Recession doesn't mean recession. Wages are up, even though wages are down. Up is down. The sky is red. This is what they tell us over and over again with their gaslighting. And you can add this one to the list. Don't worry. Of, don't worry. The new IRS doubling in size won't come after you. Wink. Good luck with that. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Jessica Tarloff is here when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the Wednesday happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome one and all. Glad to have you all here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday. And then, of course, on demand around the clock 
totally for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the ways to listen live, including through our great affiliates around the country. And if you can't listen live, the podcast is there, GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, we are at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. And check me out tonight on Special Report. In my duties as a Fox News contributor on the TV side, I'll be with Brett and company on the panel that is probably toward the end of the 6 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel this evening. And the happy hour, always sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is really good, refreshing and delicious. It is sweltering and humid in D.C., and a long drink ice cold is like the perfect remedy and the antidote, and we check it out. And we recommend checking it out. If you are 21-plus only, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They're expanding. You can see where they're sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. With us now is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, and head of research at Bustle. She also moonlights as the chief romance and baby correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. Jesse, always good to have you. Thank you for continuing to have me. Of course. So I want to talk about this Mar-a-Lago raid and what you make of it, because I come at this from sort of a Trump skeptical position as a Trump skeptical Mm -hmm. conservative, also someone who has grown more and more distrustful of the DOJ and the FBI on this stuff in recent years based on their conduct, based on their actions, based on the accountability that seems to be visited on some people but not on others. And I am looking at this with sort of, I don't know, like this intersection of unreliable narrator problems where I don't automatically take Trump at his word. I also don't take the news media at their word. I also don't take the Biden administration or the DOJ and FBI at their word. So I just don't really know very much. And I am trying to balance all of that skepticism and not get too far out over my skis here. You're a Democrat. I think you are much more inclined to disbelieve certain people and believe others. Where did you come down when you first saw the news break and where are you now? Has your thinking changed or are you kind of still in the same spot? Well, I definitely am different than you um, in a lot of ways that you, <laughs> from what you laid out there. Um, and I really haven't moved much um, since I initially heard about it. I just have more information about what went on and what actual, actually the process is. I'm not a lawyer by training. Sometimes I play one on TV. But Same. it's important to figure out what actually happened versus how people are discussing it because there's a lot of hyperbole being thrown around, um, a lot of people contradicting things that they've said on the record before, um, as usually happens when there's a scandal that hits your party. Right. Suddenly everything that you used to think has flown out the door and you don't think it's a problem at all for, uh, you know, for an elected official or former elected official um, to have mishandled classified information, which is what it seems has happened here. Um, I am someone who fell into the camp of actually wondering if Merrick Garland was going to be doing anything that Democrats wanted him to do. He has been so conscientious about making it clear that his priority is to depoliticize the DOJ. I think there is a 0% chance that he and Christopher Wray, who was a Trump appointee, 
would be risking their reputations on something um, that wasn't a case very clearly laid out. And basically, I'm going with the idea that what happened at Mar-a-Lago was the FBI's execution of a search warrant that was approved by a federal judge who gave money to Barack Obama, but also gave money to Jeb Bush, right, and was sworn in under President Trump. So he's a magistrate judge, so he wasn't a Trump appointee. And prosecutors were able to provide probable cause to that judge that a crime had been committed and that the evidence would likely be found during the search. Now, the Trump camp had months to turn over whatever was seized yesterday. And I would add as well that the warrant is in Trump's possession with an itemized list, and he refuses to release it. It is not on the DOJ to do it. Actually, they are not supposed to do that. And we saw what happened with Jim Comey when he spoke out of turn, right about the Hillary Clinton investigation. But Trump wants to run around. And not prosecuting her for mishandling classified information. Well, that was the outcome of the evaluation of it from the FBI and from the Secretary of State's office. I mean, it's not like she wasn't investigated. They chose not to prosecute her. Now they're going to investigate Donald Trump and they'll choose whether to prosecute him or not. But there's nothing that went on here that seems untoward or like it wasn't followed by the letter of the law. And I think that if you look at the people who were in charge of this, Chris Ray and Merrick Garland, you can't see a motivation to go out there and, you know, deep state Donald Trump, right? Like he loves to say. Um, so that's, that's where I come down on it. Well, I'm confident there are people probably screaming at their radios right now in the audience in disagreement. I share some of that disagreement. In fact, let's get into that next. Quick break. Back with Jessica Tarloff debating all of this on The Guy Benson Show. Energetic. Informed. Fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. We are back with Jessica Tarloff on The Guy Benson Show. And right before the break, Jesse, you were just saying that you didn't feel like there was anything untoward or potentially untoward here in this Mar-a-Lago raid. I think a lot of people would beg to differ. I think a lot of that is rooted in what just happened with the FBI, with the DOJ, for example, and the crossfire hurricane debacle where there were FISA warrants and other things signed off on based on, you know, a, a totally BS steel dossier that was paid for by the Democrats. I think a lot of people remember that very clearly in their minds and say, you know, we don't really uh, have an inclination to implicitly trust either of these entities or institutions because, as Andy McCarthy said on the show yesterday, they have unfortunately forfeited the benefit of the doubt, and I agree with that. I would like to know what the thought process is behind the Trump side not releasing the warrant, and I guess there was some discussion about whether they actually had it or whether they had just sort of seen it. We talked to Shannon Bream about that earlier. It takes two to tangle here and two to tango, and in this case, we have kind of a lot of shouting from a lot of people, but still not a ton of facts. But, Jesse, you know, to say that there's nothing untoward, I mean, this was still an extraordinary step to raid the home of a former president. And I know some people have said, well, you know, they're saying it's about classified documents, but it's probably about something more than just that. It might be tied into January 6th or something else. Well, there's a Newsweek story out today which makes a few different assertions from multiple law enforcement sources so who knows how much of this is real and i think that's part of the problem here there's so much opacity but they quote law enforcement officials saying that the goal was to make this as non-political as possible and one of the sources says they wanted to punctuate the fact that this was a routine law enforcement action stripped of any political overtones and yet they got exactly the opposite it's like come on right i mean jesse the idea that you can call the raid of a former president's house 
a routine law enforcement action stripped of any political overtones, I think is absolutely absurd on its face. And either they're just, you know, lying to us or they are absolute morons, if that's what they were thinking. And then this source and another one apparently said this, quote, senior government officials, this is from the Newsweek story, say the raid was scheduled with no political motive and the FBI solely was intent on recovering highly classified documents that were illegally removed from the White House. I guess the question is, if this is not tied to something bigger, and we don't know yet, if this is only about classified documents and they were in some sort of negotiation back and forth, do you think that something as big as an FBI raid as opposed to subpoenas and that sort of thing would be justified? Do you think that would be an appropriate thing? Well, my understanding is that they have been trying to go about this in a, quote, more civilized manner for months and that the Trump team wouldn't play ball. And that has happened across the well, board. Well, they, they played ball. They, 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 gave some, they gave some documents well, they gave back, but not others. Apparently they there was a – they're saying that there was some informant who said he's keeping some right. of these documents in this place, and so that's why they decided to go in. It just seems like yeah. a really, really big escalation over presidential I don't records. know. I, I had to listen for – a year plus, that Hillary Clinton was disqualified from the office of the presidency because she mishandled classified information, right? You heard it too. I mean, I was listening to reels of Trump saying it, of Marco Rubio, who's been all over the airwaves, um, floating absurd theories, stuff that's uh, completely wrongheaded. They never never raided the Clinton house in Chappaqua. Because she cooperated with the FBI that did a full investigation no, to what she, happened. She, and then she cooperated after she deleted a bunch of the evidence, Jesse. Remember that when she deleted permanently oh, yeah, tens of thousands the, of emails the and then lied about it? Like the filterfish emails? Yeah, I do remember that. And now no, no, there was, uh, don't, don't do that, Jesse. You know, it was not about food and yoga. It was also about highly classified top secret emails. There was a whole trove of classified material. She lied about that. We know for a fact that she lied about it. She did all sorts of illegal things and was never charged, even though she was slapped on the wrist with a statement from Jim Comey, but not charges. It just doesn't feel like they go about things the same way, depending on who the person is. And they seem to have a vendetta against this guy, as they had with the whole Russia thing. I, I just fundamentally disagree with you. I think that Hillary Clinton paid a tremendous price i.e. if you look at Nate Silver's analysis, you can actually point to her losing this election because of the Comey investigation and the fact that he decided to come out and make a comment about it, which sealed her fate. And I I just I well, really an indictment would have really can't. sealed her fate, but she avoided that for reasons that well, I think are still maybe she didn't puzzled. deserve an indictment. I mean people are saying Trump is being treated in an extraordinary level. Maybe he's an extraordinary criminal. Isn't that possible? That this man for decades who built this business here in New York City where I grew up and I'm around the same age as his kids, he was accused of and found guilty of bankrupting people, not paying contractors, dirty dealing. I mean, why is it so hard to believe that the man is continuing to break the law? And no, that no, I, the I'm, law- not saying, I'm not saying that I find it implausible or not possible. I think that to do what they did, the way they've done it, there has to be a very high bar in terms of the severity of the alleged malfeasance here. And we deserve, especially after everything that we've just all lived through, including and especially Russiagate, 
which turned out to be a giant zero based, you know, the big lie of I Russian collusion. After, well, it did. They, and there was the whole thing was I mean, he colluded was with the Russians and he didn't collude the with the Russians. Was there collusion with the Russians? His campaign manager. It was just came out last week that he was giving more documents than we knew the Russians and included internal polling documents. How Jesse, is that there was nothing? an entire massive investigation from Robert Mueller into this, and they concluded there, yes. that there was no collusion. No. No, they yes, they did. Yes, they did. They concluded that there was obstruction of justice. You won't refuse no, th- that, right? They actually didn't conclude that. They came to no conclusion well, he, on obstruction, and they came to the conclusion – hang job. on. They came to the conclusion on collusion that it didn't happen. They said there was no coordination between the Russians and the Trump campaign, and that coordination and collusion are synonyms. So to me, can you at least admit that there was no collusion between Trump and Russia in 2016? I actually want to go back and, and read the text again of it. But, yes, I know that – I mean he was impeached over obstruction of justice and not over collusion. So, sure. Okay. Well, the, the impeachment was on Ukraine. That was a different matter. And then the second impeachment was on January 6th. So there wasn't a middle impeachment I'm there. Sorry. Maybe you would have liked there to be, but there wasn't. My I'm just saying a lot of people I, feel like he was screwed over by the Russia thing, which hung over his presidency with one giant news story after another. And it turned out not to be the thing that everyone said it was, which is why, while I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt, I'm also not giving them the benefit of the doubt either because I've been sort of a, a sentient person for the last six years, obviously from a different worldview that you are. But that's where I'm coming from. Does that at least like – compute I guess so. I get level. it. It's going to animate people who have even either your worldview or the more extreme worldview that Trump is the biggest victim that ever existed in American politics. And I, I absolutely understand that. I just cannot get to a place where I think that people like Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray and Judge Reinhardt signed off on this without it having the goods. And it is not on them to prove it. It is on Donald well, Trump. No, no, it is. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. It's on them to prove that they have the goods. And I think well, if no, they're I'm going to come right out now in and... the court of public opinion, one of them has the ability to release the details of what they took and to not just sit there and say, oh, they I mean, he's actually saying that they place things there, that they, you know, they brought in something to make him look guilty. That's a huge accusation. I think that especially when we you won't need... produce a list. We need a lot more transparency about what's happening. And I think that there, and I mentioned this yesterday, Jesse, that there are three realms of possibility in my mind. Number one, they do have the goods on him for something really, really serious and egregious that would rise to the level of all of these pretty severe tactics. I'd say very severe considering who he is, the position that he occupied, the political role that he continues to play. And that will all come out in due time, I would say hopefully much sooner than later, and it will be a very bad look for him, and people will understand what was done and why. And some, you know, you'll have dead enders who are like, okay, it's bad no matter what. We hate it no matter what. But I think for average, fair-minded people, they would say, okay, we get it. That's one possibility. Another possibility is this is a fishing expedition, massive overreach, a true abuse, and that comes out, and I think it really does a lot of damage to an already frayed political system and trust in our institutions, then the middle area, the grayer area, is if they feel like they do have something on him, and this was at least on some level arguably justified, but also arguably overreach given what the, the misconduct or the criminal activity alleged was, 
And then I think that becomes like a debate over propriety and, you know, tactics and priorities and standards and that sort of thing. And if we're in that middle range, then I don't really know where this goes. If it's not somewhat black and white, I think it probably becomes yet another huge partisan food fight. Sure. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. And what more fun could we have uh, a couple months out from an election than a big partisan food fight? Um, I just <sighs> I don't think that people are, are as deep statey or as irresponsible as some other people um, have when it comes to that worldview. And it sounds like, you know, you have a bit of it. And I I don't, you know, for for the team or the side that goes on constantly about backing the blue and how important law and order is, et cetera, when these things happen, it is such a load of crap. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, other, and I'm, I'm not saying in any way that you support Marjorie Taylor Greene, you no. know, to fund the FBI. No, no, you I mean, that's, and that's silly stuff. But you also have you guys who are like, you know, you know, the, the party of defund the police is super excited about the FBI and their raids of We're a political not- figure's house as long I- as it's a political figure that they hate. Like, I think there's hypocrisy there. Now they're really mad about mishandling. Uh, you know, classified information when they were all saying, oh, it's they're nothing but her emails. They're mad about a double standard. They're mad about a double standard. It, yeah, there are double standards really going both ways in. here, which drives me crazy. I think that's that's the point. I get ticked off when both sides do it. I would love to continue the conversation, Jesse, but we are out of time. I had a bunch of other questions and other topics, including babies and romance. There's still but it's just, baby the, formula problems. Yes, there, we will, there are. There really are. That's a, a subject for another day. Jessica Tarloff. Yeah. Always appreciate it, even when we disagree. Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle. Jesse, thank you. Thank you so much, Brad. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this. As our happy hour continues here on The Guy Benson Show, I want you to listen to part of an interview that I conducted earlier in the show during our first hour with Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas 23, down at the border. There's a big battle about the border right now. Political sparring back and forth. We had Congressman Gonzalez weigh in. Listen here. I just want to play you some of this sound. We've we've referenced it a few times on the show this week. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, they've had a couple, just a, a like two or three busloads of illegal migrants coming up from Texas, dropping off in the city of New York, which is a sanctuary city, by the way, as is Washington, D.C. They say they're very proud of that, their sanctuary status for illegal immigrants. And your governor and the governor over in Arizona, Ducey, they're like, look, the administration won't do anything. They won't enforce the law. You've got this lawlessness being cheered on by Democrats across the country. Let's send some of these people directly to their front door. And those people, despite, you know, uh, pounding their chest about their sanctuary city status, they don't like that very much. Eric Adams calling it horrific, not the crisis, not the administration's policies, but Greg Abbott and the busing idea. He's calling that horrific and unimaginable. Here he is in cut 13. Listen. I mean, it's unimaginable. Come to a country uh, your first visit here, someone is throwing you out, as the governor of Texas is doing, and then trying to navigate this complex country to deliver your services, and we're doing a, a good job in doing that. All right, so it's unimaginable. Then he's saying that the burden should be on Texas. Just leave them in Texas. Texas should bear the entire burden of this. Don't send them to New York. You figure it out. Cut 17. The Texas governor invited us to the border 
uh, what the Texas governor should do is invite those who were trying to find housing in his state to give them housing instead of uh, sending them here. Oh, yeah, don't send them here. Texas should give them housing. Mm-hmm. They've come to Texas, just stay down there. That's what Adams is saying. And now there's this new wrinkle. He's now, quote, deeply contemplating this threat in cut 15. I am deeply contemplating taking a busload of New Yorkers uh, to go to Texas and do some good old-fashioned door knocking uh, because we, we have to, for the good of America, we have to get him out of office. So for the good of America, Greg Abbott needs to lose in Texas, and Mayor Eric Adams of New York City wants to go down to Texas and fight the governor on this front, on the border crisis, where he is casting Abbott as the bad guy. Congressman, what do you make of all of this? You know, this is where it's it's absolutely comical, uh, but this is where the left has taken their politics you know, uh, uh, it, if if we if it was the other way around, and let's say there was an influx of Canadians, and they were sending Canadians here to Texas, we would be up in arms. We go, wait, what's going on here? Why why, why is this happening? And the, the part that that the mayor the mayor of New York City forgot the, the the major part that he left out is these are illegal aliens, folks yep. that entered the country illegally. You know, I, I would say Texas and and, and many of us. Uh, me included, is a v- very compassionate. We want those that want to come and live and live the American dream and do it through the front door. But the front door doesn't exist because the Biden administration has shut the front door and they've created this chaotic environment. They're just getting a taste of it. You know, I've got small little towns that people's lives are turned upside down and, and Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter. Everyone to me in my district is saying, hey, Tony, find a way to solve this any way you can. We can't wait until the next election. We need help today. Yeah, it's just so amazing how these people posture and preen as these deeply compassionate folks. And we're a sanctuary city and we're not like those horrible, benighted people down in Texas. Let's go try to beat Greg Abbott because he's really the villain in all of this. And then just a drop in the bucket gets of this of this crisis of this problem gets dropped Mm -hmm. on their city and they absolutely freak out this was a stunt by abbott i called it a stunt from day one it is just a very effective stunt it is proving the point and i know that the abbott people are very eager for mayor adams to come down to texas to campaign for better or worse they're like please please do come in fact so here's the governor earlier today he Chatted with Harris Faulkner, our colleague here at Fox News, on the Faulkner Focus. This is a couple hours ago from Fox News Channel. Cut 26. Listen. You know, I kind of feel like Clint Eastwood. Go ahead, Mayor. Make my day. Uh, (laughs) There could hardly be anything better to aid my campaign against Beto O'Rourke than to have Beto O'Rourke have his campaign aided by a bunch of New Yorkers that will not be viewed very positively in the state of Texas. And what exactly would they go door knocking to say to Texans? You guys should be housing all the illegal immigrants here. We support the border crisis. We just don't want them up in New York. So know your place and stay out of the Northeast. That's kind of the message. Right. Yeah, no, they are. They're so out of touch. And, you know, I want to say, hey, welcome to the Biden border crisis party. You know, we've been expecting you. This is how the party goes. It starts off terrible. It gets worse, and just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. So I wouldn't stay too long. And and, and here's the, the the other part of it: if, if these New Yorkers come down to Texas, they may not want to leave. I mean, there's a reason why people are coming to Texas <laughs> in droves. Is uh, it's a little hot right now, 
but uh, but it's it's free country, you know. It's it's a way you can raise your family, and uh, you know you can you can start a business without being crushed by some of these taxes. I go back to it though. Look, the city of New York City should be worried about New York City. How about the people that are that are dying in their streets and on their subways? They want to distract, like everything else. They want to distract. You know, I just got back from Central America. I was in the jungles of Central America last week. I spent six days in uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, meeting with uh, President of Guatemala, foreign foreign uh, minister of of, uh, of some of the other countries. And this is what shocked me, guy. Is I specifically asked the President of Guatemala, "Hey, what would it take in order to for you to take more of these repatriation flights?" These are people that do not qualify for asylum. You send them back to their country of origin. What would it take for you to take more of those flights? His answer was one simple thing, Tony. I just need the president of the United States to call me. He won't even call me. He won't even – no one's been to that area in, in years. I mean, uh, Harris went down there one time. Uh, you know, she, it, It's kind of been a show. All they have to do, all the president has to do is pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, let's end this today, and, and this goes away. The White House is also condemning what the state of Texas is doing, what the state of Arizona is doing with the buses being sent to the Northeast. It doesn't make any sense. It's incoherent because the administration has been flying and busing illegal immigrants to mm-hmm. the destinations of their choice for months. Like yeah. That's their policy. You guys go, you come in, you get processed, we'll bring you wherever you want to go, and then hopefully show up for a court date way down the line, and a lot of them don't, of course. So they've been doing that, and just a, a couple weeks ago at this point, Corrine Jean-Pierre at the White House, the president's spokeswoman, she mm-hmm. was asked, well, what's the difference between Texas doing this and you know, and Arizona doing this versus what the administration policy is. Here's how she tried to spin it, not very successfully. This is cut. I want to get this right. This is cut 19. What's the difference between Texas busing migrants to D.C. and the federal government flying migrants to, say, New York in the middle of the night in other cities? It's very different because we're not doing it as a as using migrants as a political pawn. Oh well, it's very different because political pawn, Congressman. Does that satisfy you? It does not satisfy me. And, and look, there is some political theater in the buses getting sent to New York City and D.C. and, and who, who knows where else. Uh, I, I've been focused on, hey, how do we solve this, right? Instead of making this a political football where, you know, where, where the parties try to, you know, uh, capitalize on it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Texas 23, which I represent 42 percent of the border, Our lives are turned upside down. My full discussion with Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, which is the whole show every day, on demand, totally free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Well, a few things to talk about, food and drink related, including a traffic accident out of producer Christine's dreams. We'll explain that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Our podcast is always free every day. Catch me tonight on a special report with Brett Baer. I'll be on the panel this evening in the latter part of the 6 p.m. hour, Eastern, on Fox News Channel. Well, here's the headline from the New York Post. Truck collision spills fireball on highway, causes fire. 
This is from Arkansas. Add fireball to the menu served up by Arkansas Roads. Two tractor trailers collided Thursday on Interstate 40 in central Arkansas, causing one to spill hundreds of mini bottles of the cinnamon-flavored whiskey on the highway. Now, Christine, you sent this story to the team, and I guess these little bottles, which were scattered everywhere, some of them caught on fire, there was a blaze. You sent this to the team because you were very excited. It reminds you of another story that we talked about, I think, years ago at this point on the show, when there was a tractor-trailer that jackknifed, and it was hauling a large quantity of wine, red wine, if memory serves. And we were imagining, I think you, in fact, were talking on the air about envisioning yourself down on all fours along the highway, like you would pull over, rush over, and start lapping up the wine, the mama's juice, as you would call it, uh, like like an animal is what you were excited about doing. That's your instinct, you said. Now, in this case, it's not just a big river of red wine. It's a bunch of little bottles of liquor, flavored liquor. Are you more excited about this one, or do you like the idea of, like, you know, putting your lips directly to the asphalt and inhaling wine? Which one is more appealing to you? First of all, we, we need to step back for a second. That's not what we said. We said You said you can imagine me running like around like a crazy person with a straw and trying to suck up the wine. Well, I at least mentioned a straw. I don't think that was part of your plan. Straw is a little bit more civilized under this scenario. But <laughs> in any case, are you a fireball gal? Do you like fireball? I do like fireball. Oh. I really do. Ugh. It, it like To me, it's just like something that you have in college and you probably have one or two bad experiences with it and then you're kind of done for life that's maybe just uh, you know speaking quote unquote for a friend on this one uh i would not be very eager to even get free fireball in this case i would just hopefully bypass the whole mess and drive on my way whereas you you would be helping collect the product it sounds like i'd i'd be helping the state of arkansas because I would just go around picking up the bottles and taking them off the highway. And if they just happen to get in my car, you know, you're welcome. You're <laughs> it's welcome. A very, it's a selfless public service. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently this has been happening a lot in Arkansas. The story says over the past year, Arkansas drivers have endured a veritable feast spilled onto their roadways. Trucks carrying bourbon, frozen pizzas, and pasta sauce, and gin have all dumped their wares on the asphalt. Christine, you're, you've got to be looking at, like, Zillow listings in Arkansas at this point. I'm just wondering what is going on in Arkansas. If anybody is out there and can let us know, <laughs> why is this happening? But, I mean, think about it. What a feast. You can have pizza, pasta sauce, bourbon, gin, fireball. Yeah, it's just a You're all dream set. come true. A dream come true for producer Christine. Now, since we're on the topic, you mentioned pizza, frozen pizzas. How about this one? From CNBC, Domino's Pizza is saying Arrivederci and fleeing Italy after failing to win over local customers. Just seven years after making its debut in Milan, Domino's Pizza is saying goodbye to Italy. The fast food giant closed the last of its 19. The fast food giant closed the last of its 29 stores on the Italian peninsula after struggling to gain a foothold in the country. This per Bloomberg with locals proving to be difficult to win over for the American chain. I mean, 
who could have seen this coming aside from everybody? I mean, Domino's, I have nothing against Domino's. Sometimes you just want a Domino's pizza. For example, if you're a college student that's had too much fireball, just to pick an example at random here. I am not hating on Domino's. I am hating on the foolishness, I would say, and the arrogance of a fast food pizza chain like Domino's thinking that it would be successful in Italy. I mean, America has a lot of success in taking its chain restaurants abroad. You look at McDonald's everywhere, Starbucks, that's all fine. But the Italians take certain things very seriously, including their pizza, and bringing that product over there and expecting it to work, I think, was just a fool's errand in the first place. And now it looks like the experiment is over seven years and God knows how much money into the failed experiment. And, Christine, I know you're outraged by this because as someone who claims to be an authentic Italian, who likes authentic Italian food, you are a huge fan of not only Domino's Pizza but Domino's Hawaiian Pizza with pineapple on it, which is a source of great controversy here on the show. Do you think that maybe you should have gone over there and put on your best Italian accent and try to convince some of your fellow paisanos, quote-unquote, to try ham and fruit on their pizza? Do you think that would have maybe salvaged this experiment or what? Try a little uh, pineapple on your pizza, eh? So, wasn't my best, okay? I'll work on it. Um, I mean, here's the thing. It actually might have been your best (laughs) when it comes to accents. It was still bad. But, you know, we're dealing with a certain volume of, of work product here. In any case, do you think that Italians got this wrong? Or would you have been in there in the boardroom, in the C-suite at Domino's telling them, you know, maybe just uh, pick another market no. other than Italy for this? No, because I think you got this all wrong here. Um, when they arrived in Italy in 2015, they were basically saying, hey, guys – you can get pizza straight to your house. Like, their plan was to, you know, deliver it to the customer, like a deliverable pizza. I think what happened is, from what I read, 2020 came and all the local restaurants started delivering. So then there really wasn't a need for Domino's because the locals are not going to pick Domino's over their local Chattoria and get their proper pizza. But Domino's was planning on, they were using, you know, like real tomato sauce and mozzarella and prosciutto de Bama and gorgonzola. <laughs> they were, you know, using quality ingredients. No, ingredients? I get the theory behind it, but through Domino's pizza, I could have told you from the get-go it was not going to work over there. And, in fact, it has not. And the last couple dozen stores are going away. But, Christine, maybe you can go searching for one So, if and when you get to Italy, right? You're supposed to be going to Italy. You're threatening to go on a vacation to Italy next year. Is it 2023? Yeah. I mean, don't just say you. We, Guy Benson. You and I are going to Italy in 2023. We are, we are not going to Italy together. That's certainly for sure. You don't I may or may that. not have plans to go to Italy next year, but it would not, with all due respect and love, it would not be with you. And you were saying, well, we could just coordinate our trips, and I told you I'm not available that month. But you never told me the month, and I never exactly. told you my month. That's right. I'm not available that month. 
So I hope you go. I hope you have a great time. You can eat a lot of good pizza. It won't be Domino's. Then we can exchange notes, you know, uh, when you're back and or I'm back at different times separately. I think that sounds like a very good plan, and we're out of time anyway. So it's agreed upon. Terrific. We agree finally. Back here tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place as always. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening. Special report, 6 p.m. hour coming up on Fox News Channel. I will be on the panel. See you there. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.